Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetics industry. This is episode 232. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hello, Valerie. So good to to see you again. It's so good to see you. We have a super big show today. We're going to answer questions about, do tinted sunscreens work better? Do extra ingredients and hair color provide a benefit? Can skin get addicted to glycerin? And what does it mean when a shampoo says percent natural origin? And of course, we'll talk about some things that we left from the last podcast and of course cover beauty science news. I remember last week, Perry, we talked a bit about flossing your teeth and we have had a bit of a disagreement. I thought you should floss after you brush your teeth. That's what I do. And you said, no, I floss before brushing my teeth. And you, you actually made a comment that, you know, it's unlikely that someone did a study on this topic. Well, yeah. I wanted to let you know there actually was a study done on this topic. Really? Who would have done yeah. a study on this topic? That's fascinating. <laughs> well, a, a scientist, uh, Mazhari et al., uh, published a paper in the Journal of Periodontology in 2018, and the title is The Effect of Toothbrushing and Flossing Sequence on Interdental Plaque Reduction and Fluoride Retention, a Randomized Controlled Clinical Trial. Wow, that's Pretty amazing. Cool, huh? yeah. yeah, so basically the study assessed 25 people and they were asked to brush their teeth first, then use floss, and then the same group was asked after a certain period of time to use floss, then brush their teeth. And I'm actually pretty annoyed. Uh, researchers found that the amount of plaque between the teeth and in the mouth overall was significantly reduced when participants used the floss brush approach. Yes! Vindication! <laughs> but, wow. however, okay... Basically, they also said at the end of the day, like flossing is the most important thing. Sure. Um, So it's not like you're doing it wrong if you're doing it brush floss. Uh, The important thing is that you're flossing. And I actually went to the dentist Friday, which was perfect timing because I asked my dentist, who is uh, great, by the way. He is also a soda addict, so we have lots to talk about Uh, while he's in there cleaning my teeth. He actually cleans my teeth. He uh, doesn't have a hygienist do it. Really? He says it's really relaxing to to clean teeth. Anyway, um, he said, yeah, the important thing is that you're just doing it, and he said brush loss is fine for me. Well, that is fascinating. I actually went to the dentist also. Oh, how was it? It was good. I, uh, you know, I impressed them with my flossing streak in that I've gone uh, over two years and without missing a day. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but, but I asked them to say it. So I asked the hygienist, and of course she's a after brushing flosser, but she didn't really know. <laughs> she's a brush floss. Right, right. She's a brush floss. And then I asked the dentist because my dentist does not um, actually come in and do teeth. <laughs> It's just the, the cleanup after, I guess. I don't, I don't know. But she said she does a, uh, the flossing afterwards also. 
Interesting. Well, I bet you she didn't read that journal article. Right. She did not read the journal because she, she didn't really know. She's like, I, I'm sure either way is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I found it a little. Well, well it was just one study. Sure. And only 25 people. people. <laughs> and I will say that they did floss for like. I don't know, two consecutive times in different orders. So like maybe it impacted when you were floss brushing in the second round. I don't know. There really should have been two groups. One group did brush 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 floss first and then the other group does floss brush, you know. And then they switch. And then they switch. That's Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. we'll we'll write the authors, I don't know. <laughs> we should. You know what else <laughs> yeah. we should do? Beauty Science News. What did you see this week? You know, I saw a bunch of things, and I narrowed it down to Sephora and their clean beauty. Uh, mm. uh, they, they they made some clean beauty news. They are doubling down on their, their chemical-free promises, which... Oh, you know, gosh. it kind of bugs me. Da- daggone chemicals and products. What a nuisance. No, they're not chemical free. But the article essentially looked at Sephora's progress on their clean beauty efforts. Um, uh, it was last year or a little bit longer than last year. Uh, Sephora launched their clean beauty segment or clean at Sephora. And essentially they set up some standards. I think we might have talked about this before, but they set up mm-hmm. some standards for if products can, you know, essentially avoid these X chemicals, then they'll be able to use the seal of, you know, clean clean at Sephora, which is fine. Uh, you know, I I appreciate when a uh, a company will, you know, put some definitive guidelines about what they think uh, clean means. I still think it's kind of uh, fear mongering myself. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you read the article, they talked about. Um, how all the stuff, all the clean stuff is safer for you, even though there's no evidence for that. Even though all cosmetic products are required to be safe, but that's exactly, fine. Exactly. And like, what does that say about the brands that they're selling that aren't clean? Like they're going to sell right. less safe products. Wow, Sephora, that's dangerous. You know, that's a, that, that always amused me about the environmental working group. They, uh, they would rate products, you know, they have a rating system 1 to 10, and the higher, the closer to 10 you are, the more dangerous it is. And they would rank products like a 9 or a 10, and then they'd have a link in Amazon, an Amazon affiliate link. So if you wanted to purchase that through them, they would certainly get a kickback. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, it's Wait. dangerous. We don't mind if you buy it, though, and uh, credit <laughs> right. us a little bit. Cha-ching. Exactly. So anyway, back to Sephora. They're saying, oh, we did a good job for this, but now we're going to even double down, and they want to get a 50% reduction in the use of chemicals that they denote as their high priority. Interestingly, if you look at their list of high priority chemicals that they want you to get rid of, um, it's all the standard stuff, uh, all the preservatives, you know, uh, the all parabens, the methyl isothiazolinones, all the formaldehyde donors. You're pretty much left with very few preservatives you use in your products. Very challenging for formulators. Uh, but then they also wanted to get rid of coal tar. <laughs> do, mm. Are people still using a lot of coal tar? You know, we do not make dyes from coal tar anymore, <laughs> but uh, I digress. Right. <laughs> Although there is that anti-dandruff coal tar, right? It's a, an approved... 
yeah, but treatment? I, I don't think it's widely used. Um, yeah, but yeah. also, I don't think they're, they mean it in this sense. I think they mean that colorants are still made from coal tar, and that's just um, such an that's outdated, an- ugly term. Acronistic, as we might say, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, anyway, so Coltar, the other the other things that they wanted, but mo- I think most importantly, they want to get rid of all the aluminum salts, you know, the things that make antiperspirants work. Yeah. So essentially, if you want a working antiperspirant, you're not going to be able to buy it at Sephora. <laughs> it's interesting they had something like that on their list because I don't think they sell a lot of antiperspirants. So it's like cool. Let's put an ingredient on a list for something that we don't we don't really sell antiperspirants, but we'll throw it on there. I mean, it's they'll probably silly. stick with selling all the natural deodorants, right? And natural mm-hmm. deodorants are not antiperspirants because they don't stop you from sweating. They just cover odor. So, so anyway, uh, then there's one more part of this that I thought was interesting. It was a quote from whoever their expert was, but they said. Women in particular, on average, use 16 products on their faces alone before leaving the house in the morning. And I say to myself, who uses 16 products, let alone 16 being the average? Like, what are these 16 products? Yeah, I I mean, if 16 is the average, I I mean, that's, let's just say it's the middle number even. Right. Who's using 30 products on their face? That's a lot. I mean. I th- can you think of 16 products that you would use on your face before you leave in the morning? Even if I cleansed, yeah. moisturized, toned, put actives on, put my sunscreen on, and did a full face of makeup with all of the different things that you have to use, such as foundation, concealer, blush, mascara, eyeliner, lipstick, you still don't add up to 16. I know, that's... 10 maybe I don't, highlighter do um <laughs> and then even then you're walking out looking like there, there's no way someone who, someone who wears a lot of makeup <laughs> I, i'm just saying all i'm saying is there's no way that can be right that's no way, <laughs> way that's the average right that's the average i, I certainly yeah. you could get 16 products on. i actually but. would like them to cite that study as a brand when you cite a statistic you're required to put where you got the information from i would like well, them I, to do that i would point out though it was only a quote in a news article so they you know they could just say oh you're always misquoted or something. Yeah, I just, I, i'm gonna follow up and ask them for sure you know it would be it would be good maybe we maybe we put on our our instagram what 16 products do you use on your face yeah <laughs> i don't know Oh, All right, geez. that's what I had. What what did you see in the news? Well, I saw that a company called Safe Hair is launching oh boy, an yeah. antimicrobial hair collection in September on Amazon. I saw this one too. <laughs> wow. So ridiculous. So I know we had a question a couple months ago uh, when we were locked down in quarantine and somebody said like, hey, should I worry about coronavirus being in my hair and we were like well if you're shampooing your hair you should be fine i think maybe someone was listening to our show i'm not really sure (laughs) Uh, but they have created a hair and hand instant cleansing spray and of course a hair and body shampoo that allegedly kills 99 percent of bacteria on the hair and scalp it uses benzalkonium chloride as an active 
They say it's right. suitable for all hair types, color safe, uh, which I, I would be really surprised about. And you can use it for also for hair tools, beards, and pillowcases. Wait, wait, let's back up. Uh, why would you be surprised that benzalkonium chloride would be color safe? Uh, well, just the overall shampoo. I would be surprised if the overall system were oh, okay. color safe, especially, you know, this spray uh, probably has a lot of either water or solvent in it. And those sure, typically sure, sure. Uh, are not color safe. Uh, but anyway, they also say not only does the shampoo or spray aid in sanitizing, but your strands are going to be soft with ingredients like tea tree oil, which is a bactericide antiseptic and also sure. is healing and antifungal. I don't know how that makes your strands soft and moisturize if it's... It works um, great on your feet, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, Lemongrass, so which is also a bactericide antiseptic and antifungal, and aloe vera, which is a bactericide. So um, I'm surprised they can get away with those claims, and I wonder how long it will be before the FDA sends them a little letter. Yeah, I don't think they can get away with those claims. I mean, uh, antimicrobial is considered an over-the-counter drug in the U.S., and tea tree oil, uh, lemongrass, and uh, aloe are not on the monograph for active ingredients that you can say do that. Yeah, they need to be advertising it's uh, benzalkonium chloride that's doing everything. It needs to have a drug facts panel. Maybe it does. I haven't seen it. It's not launched yet, but I I will be very surprised if this stays around for a long time. And also... Well, I'm also... I'm sorry. I'm also not sure that this form, uh, shampoos or hair treatments, would qualify as antimicrobial, uh, as a way you could deliver antimicrobial. Exactly. I I didn't think it was a dose, but also I think like if you just shampoo your hair, you should be fine. Right. You you don't need these sprays for sure. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. The shampoo is going to kill 99% of the the bugs on there. Yeah. Um, You know, washing them away. (laughs) This must be a trend, though. I was uh, contacted by a reporter for, uh, I forget which outlet, but uh, they wanted a quote for an article they were writing about antimicrobial makeup. (laughs) Mm. So this must be a trend, all the antimicrobial stuff. Bad idea. I mean, these antimicrobial agents are like uh, serious quats. You know, like we use the term quat a lot in cosmetic science and it speaks to a positively charged uh, nitrogen that either it sticks to your hair because your hair is negatively damaged and the nitrogen is positively charged and you get some sort of conditioning effect. But then you have quats like benzalkonium chloride that I call them serious quats because they do have uh, antimicrobial or antifungal activity. And I I call those serious quats because um, there are some safety issues with a lot of those quats. Uh, A lot of quats are disinfectants and uh, should have limited skin contact. And in fact, Europe is actually taking a really hard closer look at the safety of quats in general because uh, their overuse can have long-term ramifications. So I also find it alarming that this is what they're using. So we'll see what happens. I am curious though, would would you say serious quats, does your phone say, hello, I'm listening? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Anytime you say a word even close to the word Siri, it's just... <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, we got one one more little thing. I was looking through 
um, GCI Magazine, and they had a had a nice little article about the top 14 brands. And I thought, hey, I know beauty brands. And I'm looking through this list. I'm like, I, I don't know some of these brands. So I thought we'd do a little quiz uh, and go okay. through the top the top brands at Target and at Walgreens. Uh, for our international listeners, those are uh, drugstores and, I don't know, department stores or supermarket stores okay. uh, in the United States. All right. What do you think the top-selling brand at Target is? Um, I'm going to say it's hard because part of me, I'm thinking about oh. what it's like to walk down the beauty aisles sure, at Target. Sure. And there is a lot of... Um, L'Oreal company. So are we sure, talking sure. like conglomerate or are we talking, I'm talking like, like the, the most SKUs sold at, uh, at target. Okay. And then they have like a big section for Pixie, which is yeah. a makeup brand. Yeah. Um, and then they also have an exclusive with elf. Okay. Um, and the rest are like smaller ones like Maybelline and Max That's Factor. number seven. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. Not on the list. Uh, um, so that's just cosmetics, but then like thinking skincare, yeah, it would be like Elf. And then we have a lot of um, Neutrogena and Aveeno. Uh-huh. Valerie, I'm pretty impressed. Elf is the number one seller at Target. It's number one? It's the number one selling SKU at Target. Yeah, Elf. I'm a little surprised by that, to be honest. I'm I'm a lot surprised by that. Yeah. I thought they were a small brand, but I would have said like not. top five, you know. Yeah, they're but number one. Yeah, you could probably guess number two. Is it L'Oreal? It is L'Oreal. Boy, you're okay. good at this game. <laughs> yeah, um, and then number three, you said Maybelline was number six or seven. Uh, Maybelline was number seven. Yeah. Okay. Is it? Um, I'll give you one hint. It's a natural brand. Okay, I was going to say oil of Olay. That's definitely not natural. Olay is on the list number 11. Okay. Um, And it's not Pantene, which is number 8. Okay, I wasn't even thinking hair. Oh, man. Um, Is Garnier on the list, by the way, for hair? Garnier is not in the top 14. Uh, that's one of my favorite shampoos, by the way. Um, so if you're a formulator and you formulated that and you're listening to this show, thank you. <laughs> Good job. Good job. <laughs> um, natural. Uh, natural or natural-ish? I would say they were one of the original naturals. Burt's Bees. Burt's Bees. There you go. Okay. Right. Wow. Really? But, that's number three? Number three at Target. Uh, and then number four, I don't even know this brand, Sonia Sonia oh, Kashuk. Kashuk, yeah. Never yeah, it's it's, it. a, it's makeup. Yeah, that, that oh, was okay. like well, a, a collaboration. Yeah, I actually um, y- used to buy that makeup. I really um, enjoyed it. It's okay for the price. Uh, well, um, they're they're doing they're doing well at Target. Okay. Although we'll see how well they're doing now with the the pandemic times. I can I can imagine the color cosmetics are going to drop off a little bit. Yeah. What about number five? Give me a hint. Number five, uh, big brand, Unilever, sort of androgynous. Uh, Unilever androgynous. They have a four men version. <laughs> that's all, that's all I guess what I'm saying. What is it? Dove. Really? Yeah. I would have never guessed that. That's interesting. Do- Dove Beauty, yeah. 
All right, mm. let's just do the quick top three at Walgreens. And actually, I'm just going to tell you them because yeah, you just kind of already them. named it. Walgreens, uh, L'Oreal is number one there. Maybelline, number two. And CoverGirl, number three. Not surprised. Walgreens is a great place to get cosmetics. Yeah. There was another brand I didn't recognize either, NYX. You familiar with that one? Yeah, NYX. It's a L'Oreal-owned brand. They're uh, uh, founded and based out of California. And uh, yeah, very, lots of makeup. Lots and lots of makeup. Well, these these things fascinate me. I'm in the business, and I didn't even rec- I, di- I didn't even realize Elf was such a big seller. Well, to be fair, I, I can understand that you're not too knowledgeable in the color cosmetic space, <laughs> yeah, just because. Yeah. I mean, you're not wearing makeup, so I'm not wearing makeup, and I'm not actively formulating it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Wow, we had lots of stuff to catch up on, and. I think we should move on to our questions. Yeah, well, we've got two audio questions and two that were written in. So let's start with an audio question. Hello, Beauty Brains team. I have been following uh, all of your podcasts religiously, and I really, really love the kind of information that you've been giving out to us. Uh, I'm so glad I chanced upon, I rather it was actually a blessing to have come across Beauty Brain podcasts. Thank you so much. And my question uh, today is about tinted sunscreens. So I have been reading that uh, tinted sunscreens work better than non-tinted sunscreens because they also block visible light. A non-tinted sunscreen does not block visible light. So is this true? And if this is true, is it also true that tinted sunscreens may help certain skin conditions? I would be very happy if you could clarify this doubt of mine. Thank you so much. All right, tinted sunscreens. Yeah, there was a lot to digest here because I think we have a few things going on. So first, thank you for the audio question. So I think that there's a few things. One, tinted sunscreens versus non-tinted sunscreens and, and how they work. Yeah, let's just talk about what are tinted sunscreens sunscreens that are tinted yeah they, typically. They, <laughs> they have colors in them and the colors are approved by the fda so they're that's it's that yeah. simple <laughs> and the colorant comes from physical pigments called iron oxides and they have uh they're blended together to make different shades of skin color so light dark um and all of the the tones in between but these are essentially like the like the bb creams right Exactly. Yes. So that's the difference between them. But the the question is, do they work better because they block visible light? Yeah, that is that is the interesting part of the question. I I do want to say that as far as if something is a sunscreen, how well it works is based on the SPF rating that it gets. And so since sunscreens are classified as drugs in the United States, there is specific testing that you have to run to get a SPF value that you can put and advertise on your label. The thing about a tinted sunscreen, the fact that it's tinted does not really matter in terms of running that test. You have to run the test on your finished formula so it's already tinted. So any SPF value that you're going to get from your tinted sunscreen is based on the sunscreens that are included and any tinting they do. So it's not like if you find something that's SPF 30, one's tinted and one's not tinted, 
they're still both going to work as SPF 30s for the sunscreen piece of that. But the other piece is, does blocking visible light uh, actually help? That's an interesting sort of twist on this. Yeah, I I know that certain visible light, visible light is a really big spectrum of wavelengths, and it's different from ultraviolet light, which is uh, what sunscreens are measured to protect against. Ultraviolet light does cause DNA damage. Uh, visible light, uh, I believe that some of the wavelengths are not great for skin, uh, but they don't cause DNA damage. I think they do uh, other types of aging on the skin. And I don't think that we currently test for visible light protection um, in sunscreen. So, Right. There's, there's the theoretical problem of blue light, which people are saying you get from your cell phone and the screens you're looking at and visible light. I am unconvinced that blue light is more than just a... Uh, scientific phenomenon that uh, marketers have sort of latched onto to create a like a mm -hmm. new product you got to worry about uh, but there is some science behind it it's just uh, the evidence is really not to my satisfaction that it's uh, definitive that it's really a problem that people need help with i don't know yeah we, and we don't t test sunscreens for that but what would be interesting if this uh the question pertaining to visible light were not about tinted sunscreens versus non-tinted sunscreens, but more about the uh, mineral sunscreens, the sunscreens that rely on physical pigments like titanium dioxide or zinc oxide. Yeah. If you asked about those versus the, I, I know you hate this term, chemical sunscreens. <laughs> right. Sure. And I say that every episode. That would have been an interesting question because it is true that part of how the physical sunscreens work is that the the oxides get a UV light or a light source hitting them and then it's reflected back out. It's not uh, physically absorbing it and working as a sunscreen in that mechanism. So that would have been interesting because you have this like physical barrier on the skin. You would be blocking your skin from not only ultraviolet light, but visible light exposure. So that would have been um, interesting, but it doesn't necessarily have to do with tinting. But not that your question isn't interesting. <laughs> it was already No, it's, interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting, yeah. yeah. And the last piece, uh, you know, is there any benefit to tinted sunscreens? Again, I think it's not so much about the tinting, but the other sunscreen actives, and that may be because of the zinc oxide, Perry. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, th I, I think as far as are there any benefits, the benefit of a tinted sunscreen is that it provides some color uh, to your skin. I don't think it's providing uh, any additional, uh, noticeably additional protection. So I don't, I don't see any evidence that it is going to noticeably protect your skin better. There certainly will be marketers who would disagree with me. And there's some science which uh, people will show some studies that uh, you need protection from the, the, the visible blue light. Uh, you know, I don't find that those studies convincing. But you know, if if you are, find the tinted sunscreens helpful, uh, by all means, use them as long as they're rated by their SPF. And if they're UVA blockers, even better. Uh, zinc oxide-based sunscreens are going to provide you that UVA and even some uh, visible suns, uh, visible light protection because it, it does reflect the light. I mean, a white pigment reflects uh, all the visible light. Do you think that this question maybe is coming from 
about the skin benefit coming from that. Again, let's take the tinting out of the equation and just talk about sunscreens that have uh, physical particles in them like zinc oxide. I know zinc oxide is monographed as a skin protectant in the United States. Do you think yeah. that's why there's this perception that these uh, zinc oxide sunscreens might have skin benefits? You know, like you would put zinc oxide on like a, a baby's nappy area or something like that. I think that is that is a piece of it, but I think this question just comes from tinted sunscreen makers advertising that theirs is better than just a regular sunscreen. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I, I well, our next question comes from Kate. She says, Hi, Perry and Valerie. Thank you for your podcast. I learned so many things from you. What can you say about products that you add to the hair color to make it more full, strong, and shiny, and or make the color more stable, according to the manufacturer? Since the hair shaft is open during the oxidative coloring process, the good things can penetrate easily, which makes sense. My concerns are it will disturb the diligently formulated hair color formula, or it's just conditioners or silicone treatments packed in fancy ampules for the big price. So in theory, I can replace it with something similar. I already have. Interesting. <laughs> and she posts some ingredient listings for us to look at. And she has yeah. a second question. Do post-color treatments really work or are they just acidic conditioners? Does it make sense to use them? And she lists another product example. Thank you from Russia with Love, Kate. Well, fortunately, she sent in this question to the Beauty Brains when we had one of the country's foremost experts in hair color <laughs> on the show. <laughs> oh, are you talking about me, Perry? Oh, yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what a great question because additives for hair color are all the rage. Lots of people are selling uh, different versions of them and... I don't think the question is whether or not they work. It's do they work how they're being advertised to work? I think that's the really important question. So I personally, as a formulator, I don't like additives in hair color because you are adding another variable to a reactive chemical process. Most cosmetic products, you don't want them to react with the hair or skin. The whole point is they're non-reactive. And hair color, you need a reaction to happen in order for uh, the melanin in your hair to be removed and for the hair color reaction to oxidize together and form a color and uh, close everything uh, down so the hair color stays. So, Actually, one of my most disappointing things about getting into the cosmetic industry as a chemist is that when you're studying chemistry in college, you mix together chemicals and you hope that there's some kind of cool chemical reaction going on. Yep. But when you're formulating, you mix together all these chemicals and usually you hope to God nothing happens. <laughs> it's like the it's opposite. Like, yeah. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah. But hair color is the is one area where there's actual chemistry happening on your yeah. head. It's very I actually cool. use organic chemistry every day. And one of my chemists said to me... Um, I never use a periodic table and I was like, I have to use it all the time for what I do, but I work in molar ratios and that kind of stuff. Sure. So anyway, um, wait, you're a dentist now. <laughs> molar ratios. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Anyway, that was awful. Um, so for me as a, a formulator and someone that sees lots of testing, I don't like additives in hair color one for the obvious safety reasons. Uh, you, it needs to, not react with the formula or cause complications and you know reactions in hair color um, being sensitive to what's going on is very real why complicate it 
Yeah. Uh, the second thing is you really want the color to work as best as possible and not have any interference. And when you add these uh, ampules that are really just really good conditioning agents, you're throwing something else into the mix that is competing for space in the hair or on the hair. And that's where the color is trying to go. Also, when you add ingredients to um, hair color, you can impact the affinity of certain dyes into the fiber and you can get varying color results. So predictability also goes out of the window a little bit when you're putting additives in. The particular additive uh, that you added or the particular additive that you wrote about from the Russian brand is essentially a silicone quaternium 18 as a blend. Uh, silicone quaternium 18 is an excellent silicone tur polymer, meaning it has uh, three pieces to it that make up this polymer. And this is very good at forming an even film on the hair. Um, sometimes silicone droplets uh, kind of disperse over the hair fiber. This actually like forms a flat film. And yeah. when you touch it, your hair feels really soft. Um, it's a softening silicone. So it makes sense that it's uh, conditioning the hair. And then pretty much everything after it is a preservative and uh, solubilizer and, and marketing ingredients. I have no idea why they put um, retinyl palmitate in this, why they have uh, inositol. Or the horse chestnut. Eh? <laughs> or horse chestnut. Uh, why, why would they put biotin in this? Like, what a waste. So, um, and then also it's fragranced and... Uh, to me, fragrance uh, can complex with dyes. It can cause lots of sensitivities uh, if it's not properly tested with hydrogen peroxide developers. So um, if you're a formulator for brands and you're making hair color additives, please don't put fragrance in it. Um, it just adds adds complication and, and risk for the guest. Um, so for me, this is probably a very excellent conditioning treatment. I would save it for after the color service to make sure yeah. that... Um, you know, your guest is getting the maximum color benefit and then they're getting the maximum treatment benefit. Um, that is if this uh, treatment doesn't pull color out of the hair, which, um, you know, I'm not sure if it does. Right. But yeah, I would just keep them um, separate. A lot of them um, are fancy um, silicone conditioning treatments. You're exactly right. But sometimes there are additives that can be put in the color that do provide a benefit that's not conditioning, but it can change the way the hair fiber feels or changes like the, the tensile properties of the hair. But that's a little different. The second question, post-color treatments, are they just acidic conditioners? Um, yeah, sometimes they are. Yeah. Once you're done coloring the hair, you've really exposed the hair to a really aggressive high pH system and you want to a, make sure that you can stop the coloring or bleaching process on the head with the hydrogen peroxide. You want to get all of the hydrogen peroxide off the hair, which is really what post-color shampoos and conditioners are meant to do is stop that process. And then, stop of course, that chemical you have, reaction, yeah. Exactly, which is what the Express Post-Color Treatment by Wella that you mentioned, that's what this product does, is it really stops uh, hydrogen peroxide from continuing on the hair. And of course, it's going to condition the hair at the same time. It's not going to just do one thing. So you have the, the, the function of stopping the hair color process. You have the second bonus of conditioning the hair. And the third is lowering the pH of the hair so that uh, 
the cuticle is less swollen and uh, the guests can leave uh, feeling like their hair is really soft and healthy. And the fourth thing it does, since it's got fragrance in there, it makes it smell different too. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yep. I I do wonder. Uh, I haven't really gotten my hair colored in a, a, more than a decade. Um, is there You've an You've colored odor? your hair before? I, I was working on some uh, a product to keep hair color in, and I was one of the test subjects in the... Uh, in oh, the salon. cool. So, yeah, I did All it. All right. But uh, I hey, wait, don't what was recall. Your question? My question was Does hair coloring make your hair smell not good? I know perms can oh, make perms hair are smell sort of awful. <laughs> yeah. And some, sh- some straightening treatments can make your hair smell yeah. like a cat litter box, too, which is not pleasant. <laughs> but how, how about, I mean, not the same odor, but how about hair colorants? Do they give hair a certain odor that needs to be covered up with fragrance? No, I'll tell you why. Uh, Most people, when they're concerned about odor from hair color, they're like, oh, I don't want my hair to smell like ammonia. It's not going to smell like ammonia. Ammonia is a gas. And as soon as it uh, hits your hair, it's going to uh, evaporate into the air and leave the hair hair fiber. So um, it's not going to remain in your hair. Um, MEA is another alkalizer that people use. I personally think MEA has a little bit of odor to it. But it generally doesn't um, remain in the hair. Um, Sometimes certain dyes have an odor. And if the product has a lot of these uh, dyes, I can smell them. Um, A lot of people are not familiar with it and they can't smell them or they can't distinguish them. Like I can walk up to a bowl of color and if some of these dyes are present, I can smell it. But I'm um, more close to it in my work. but most hair color has fragrance, and then you're post-shampooing any, any remnants or unreacted product out, and usually yeah. the shampoo and conditioner have a fragrance, so any odor that would be left is uh, neutralized and gone. Yeah, your, your nose is just not going to smell it. <laughs> all yeah. right, fascinating. Hair color talk. Who knew? Yeah. So I could talk about it all day, so you better stop me, Perry. <laughs> well, we've got an audio question that's going to stop you, and this one comes to us from Davey. Let's hear what Davey has to say. Hi, Beauty Brains. I'm Davey from Germany. I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while now, and I've learned so much about cosmetic formulations, about the trends and all that. I have a question for you guys. I heard and read on the internet that we have to be mindful of the concentration of glycerin in a formula because it has been said that our skin can get addicted to glycerin. From what I know personally, Glycerin is one of the best humectants out there. It works really well to provide the skin with moisture, and it's also cheap. So what do you think about it? Is there any scientific study that can back up this claim, or is this just another fear-mongering? Thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to hearing your answer. Bye-bye. Well, thank you for that, Davey. Uh, This does remind me uh, of the title of our first book. It was called, Can You Get Hooked on Lip Balm? Basically, there really is no good evidence that your skin is going to be addicted to glycerin or even moisturizers in general. I hear that, you know, if you don't want to use moisturizers too much because your skin's going to get addicted. It's kind of this, it's kind of the same notion of your lips being addicted to, to chapstick or lip balm. What really happens is it's, it's not a chemical addiction like yeah, like your skin can't physically be addicted. Like, give me more. <laughs> right, right. There's that. It it doesn't work that way. Like, 
cigarettes or cocaine or something like that. Okay. That's a <laughs> whoa. A, <laughs> we're from zero yeah. to sixty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that's a, that's the first thing I thought of. I, <laughs> I don't know, but that's those are chemical addictions. What happens is for something like glycerin or a, a moisturizer or even lip balm. Your, your skin gets a certain feeling, and then you kind of get used to how that feels. And then when the product kind of rubs away, uh, your skin starts to revert back to a dry feeling, and that kind of annoys you, and so you want to put more on. And so you get into this psychological habit more. It's more like a habit, a bad habit. And where you just put on more product, and then when it goes away, you don't you want that you don't want the feeling to go away, so you keep reapplying product. But in no way does your skin get addicted to glycerin, lip balm, or moisturizers. It's just a, a psychological thing, almost like biting your nails. You know, that's mm-hmm. it's a habit. It's not like an addiction. So no, your your skin does not get addicted to glycerin. Well, it's an honest question because, you know, people do say, oh, my uh, lips get used to lip balm. I have to keep reapplying it. Uh, It's these companies are, you know, making me want to put it on all the time. It's exactly as you said. I put on a lip balm at the beginning of this episode. And while Perry's talking, honestly, (laughs) what I've been doing this whole time is rubbing my lips together. And I'm going to be honest, I've been looking at myself in the camera because it was a tinted lip lip balm. Oh, and tinted, my yeah. lips look very good. And I've been doing a little duck lip while Perry's talking. He hasn't noticed. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this color looks so good. My lips are so shiny. They feel hydrated, lubricious. Like it feels Whoa. so good. And I've been rubbing them together a lot, licking them. Uh, it's also a flavored lip balm, so it's pretty good. <laughs> and um, now my lips are feeling dry because I've basically eaten all of the lip balm off of my lips. I think that's kind of of what happened. And now I need to go put on more. It has nothing to do with my lips. It's uh, the fact that I'm obsessed with... Valerie, this is is how the addiction starts. Stop yourself now. Cut yourself off now. (laughs) You didn't notice? I'm like, "Mm," like, in the camera. Anyway, yeah, so it's totally... uh, It's all in your head. Right, and... I would say, yes, it is kind of (laughs) (laughs) fear-mongering. Well, our last question comes from Yvette. She asks, why am I seeing percent natural origin on products? What does it mean? Why is it that shampoos always have a lower percent natural origin than conditioners? Well, Yvette, that is a great question. We are starting to see a lot of percent natural origin on products because brands are getting in trouble for saying natural. People are catching on that products do contain, I'll put in uh, air quotes here, you can't see them, chemicals. And really the most proper thing is to say, well, how much of it is natural? Perry has always said you can't walk up to a coconut, squeeze it into a shampoo bottle and say, boom, I have, you know, a shampoo here. The coconut gets squeezed and then all these chemical reactions happen happen to it and uh it's a chemical you have to process it to make it into a a shampoo yeah Yeah. perry's always talked about that that. so perry people have been listening to they they've said you know what perry you're right you cannot walk up to a palm kernel squeeze it and you know boom you have fatty alcohol so uh they've listened and the world has acknowledged that really the most proper 
you know, technical thing to do is create this thing called percent origin. And there actually is an international standard for it. It's uh, called ISO 16128. And they say that there's four categories of ingredient and they indicate which ingredients can qualify as having a natural origin or are natural or don't qualify at all. And you, you put this mathematical calculation together and create a score and you can determine in a formula how much of the formula comes from natural origin. Ipso facto, the other percentage that adds up to 100 uh, is not natural origin. So for example, if you have a lotion that is 80% natural origin, that doesn't mean it's 80% natural. It means 80% of the formula has ingredients that came from a natural source at some point, and then the 20% is non-natural synthetics. Um, or, that or sort the, of thing. So it's the 20% isn't supernatural? Is that... This <laughs> <laughs> like, was yeah. come down from God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one of my criticisms of this percent natural calculation is the numbers are, to me, artificially high because water is included in the calculation. And that's sure. not actually solely my criticism. That's actually a criticism of this method. I applaud that there is a, a method and they're trying to standardize how how this gets uh, conveyed. But, uh, I mean, come on, you can't say my product's 99% natural and it's 99% water and 1% something else. Well, a lot of the a lot of the natural standards groups like EcoCert or uh, mm-hmm. the USDA, they say, okay, take out water and salt, and then okay. They and I appreciate natural. that. Yeah. yeah, it's like yeah. you can't count water; it artificially inflates things. Right. Um, Everything so that will be ninety percent natural. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And one excellent question. So keep that in mind. Uh, that Yvette had was, why do shampoos have a lower percent natural origin than conditioners? And that is because conditioners have more water than shampoo conventionally. I'm sure you could point out as a formulator one or two instances where that's not the case. But generally, conditioners have tons of water in them. They just don't look like it because it's water tied up in an emulsion. Um, And then shampoos are water, but they have lots of solids in them, lots of surfactants and preservatives and thickeners and that kind of stuff. So... Shampoo looks less natural than conditioners, but again, you have to take into consideration that this method of calculation includes water. Yeah, actually, the a, a brand that I worked on in my former life uh, was a lot of water. <laughs> in fact, it was was it enough water where you could drink the product. No, no, I, I wouldn't drink it. And the consequences was, were negligible. <laughs> it was 85% water, but the conditioner was uh, over 90% water. So. Yeah. But pr- I have to say, the product still worked. <laughs> yeah, and one thing is, I don't want people to take away, well, brands are diluting this stuff with water. You need water in formulas. Uh, yeah. You know, if you had a shampoo with no water, it's very hard to dissolve in the shower and that kind it of stuff. It would be powder. So. It would be... <laughs> Yeah, and it would be hard. It's hard to use. The thing about these right. powdered shampoos on the market is, yeah, they're neat, but you really have to use a ton of water in the shower and work it to get it to solubilize. So yeah. we need water in these products to uh, dissolve everything. Yeah, the water makes it work better. But just the more water you put in, the the you know the less functional it'll work. Although I should say, I was when I worked on a, the shampoo brand and. We, I was a cost savings chemist, mm-hmm. and so I had to find a ways to make the formula less expensive. 
if I could just add one percent more water on the brand, I could save like three hundred thousand dollars a year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you're already at like ninety five percent water, that's not a lot of room for stuff, man. We sold a lot of those bottles. (laughs) Yeah. The last comment I want to add, and by the way, uh, Perry worked for a mass market brand. Not all brands (laughs) use that much water. I just want to point that out. That Um, is a good point. Mine was a special brand. The other thing I want to point out is anytime you see someone claiming 97% natural, 87% natural, or even natural origin, just ask yourself what's in the other percentage. Um, And this really is one of my... uh, soapbox rants is with hair color, um, hair, all oxidative hair color works the same. And you can argue with me about it, but I I make the stuff for a living. Every brand is using the exact same chemistry, the exact same chemicals for oxidative hair color to work. The chemistry has been the same for over a hundred years. When a hair color brand says 97% natural and people are like, why can't our hair color be 97% natural or whatever? It's like, well, what's in the 3%? It's the thing that makes it a hair color. It's it's no different from ours. So just anytime you see a number out of 100, ask yourself, what's that other percentage like? My little takeaway. No, it's a great question. And it looks like it brings us to the end of the questions. Wow, what a big show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, if you get a chance, can you go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review or go to Spotify and leave us a review. We're over there too. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Incidentally, speaking of questions, if you have one and you heard those voices on the show today, you can be one of those voices. All you got to do is record your question on your smartphone and then email it to us. Ideally, you email the text also to thebeautybrains (laughs) at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at the Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're at the Beauty Brains. And we have a Facebook page. We are also on Patreon. And we're going to have a special uh, event for patrons coming in September, uh, which you will get in your Patreon uh, inbox. But uh, if you want to su- subscribe to us on Patreon, go to, the be- uh, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens! <laughs>